could you just share some experience about your role and responsibilities today at Lyft and your previous role at uh, Google? Yes, indeed. So uh, today at Lyft, uh, I lead uh, the team we call Lyft Level 5, which is focused on building self-driving cars, essentially for Lyft, uh, with uh, an eye to be specifically focused on the needs of rideshare. Uh, and I've been, uh, I founded this group and I've been leading it ever since. It was about three and a half years ago. Prior to that, I was at Google for over 12 years and there had actually a pretty interesting story. So I, I came to Google to work on Google Books. Uh, I was intrigued by uh, the ambition of Google to scan all the world's books. But Google at the time was encouraging uh, engineers uh, and just about anybody at the company to have side projects that we call the 20% project if they saw value. And uh, so I, I got interested in a, a project that uh, was a collaboration between uh, Stanford uh, and Google, which had been in fact spearheaded by Larry Page himself. Page is a founder of Google, one of the co-founders, sorry. And uh, the idea was to just uh, collect uh, imagery at street level from, uh, from vehicles driving around. And his vision was essentially to not just bring the web to people, but bring the world to people. And you wanted to collect data at street level and make that useful in some fashion. So the vision was still a bit fuzzy, but uh, aligned with Google's overall mission. Uh, since you know Google was going, going very fast, there was really nobody at the company at the time, you know, so that had actually spent any time on this project. So I, I took that on as my 20% project. I managed to get some interest from a handful of other contributors uh, who will help me out. I managed to hire the first summer seven interns <laughs> to help me out. And so this first summer well, with uh, seven interns, myself, product lead, and then you know, another handful of people, we managed to put together kind of an end-to-end -end demo of what something like this could look like. So we put together, like we hacked a car together, uh, you know, with a bunch of, you know, cameras and LiDAR and hardware in the car. Uh, we got help from uh, the security team at, at Google to drive this car around to collect data. We managed to establish some very early and clunky way of getting data out of the cars through hard disk, you know, being plugged into a, a kind of a, under somebody's desk, uploading. And then we managed to put together a kind of end-to-end -end computer vision pipeline to make this data useful. And... Uh, at the end of this summer, a couple of weeks after that, I, uh, you know, we had enough to, to talk about the project. I gave a tech talk. Uh, then we had like a review with a you know, VP of engineering at the time. They thought it was interesting. And then they gave us, you know, the real go ahead to actually make this real uh, and hire people. So at that time, we were able to go on and, and uh, start hiring, you know, sort of uh, engineers to work on this. And uh, about a year Plus later, we launched in five cities. Why five? Well, we wanted to, from day one, sort of show that the project was not just a California experiment, but an ambition to, to grow beyond a single city. So we decided on five cities spread across the US. You know, still very small amount of data in each city, but uh, useful. And from there, we, you know, wanted to, you know, sort of see what happened, right? It's a brand new product space. Uh, nobody had launched uh, street level imagery before uh, in the context of maps. We, uh, we managed to, you know, uh, have record traffic uh, and record, you know, sort of a press interest in the product. Uh, so from then on, we knew that, well, this is going to work. This is something that people want. And so we were focused on then the scale, growing this product from an early stage experiment to something that could be scalable. And uh, I guess my focus over the next few years 
was that scared? Was to make this real? Was to uh, to make it more robust? To uh, start to rewrite everything about the software we had built because everything was sort of cranky at the time. It was all about moving fast and not about having something you know super reliable. So along the way, my career grew. I you know the team grew from you know a handful of people to over a hundred. Then we had the global operations as well. And uh, you know after that, I I also expanded my scope to be uh, interested to be uh, involved in imagery of different kinds, uh, imagery captured from airplanes, from satellites, from users on cell phones. And essentially the mission became to make sense of all this imagery uh, in the context of maps and to derive data for maps. So not just about presenting images to users through a street view or Google Earth, but to go from essentially raw pixels to knowledge and structured data. So Today, in fact, uh, more and more Google Maps and I assume other you know, companies' maps are built automatically by data mining imagery and extracting from that, you know, the sort of uh, uh, street signs, information about street names, house numbers, and all this, all the information you need to make a map. So we pioneered this uh, along the way uh, and expanded the scope of this to derive, you know, knowledge from other kinds of imagery at, uh, at Google. So that's my my story at Google in a nutshell. And so were you collecting data via LiDAR or radar, I guess, in the early days and you expanded to guess to use all different sources? Yeah, so the Street View was primarily about imagery, but we, from the very beginning, felt that there was going to be interesting uh, information that we couldn't easily derive from the imagery. And uh, that was about 3D of the environment. And the reason for that was that we wanted to be able to give you a smooth transition between panoramas. So imagine this, if your street view images are like a bubble, right? And when you navigate from bubble to bubble, it can be very jarring if there's no transition, right? You're just like, you, you lose your, your context. And in order to give you a very smooth transition from one bubble to the next one, you need to be able to essentially take the first bubble and warp it in a way that it sort of moves to the second one. And the warping involves understanding 3D. So what you do is you project the imagery onto 3D, a course 3D of the environment, and then you, you sort of move the user smoothly to the next bubble. To do this, you need 3D. So you can, in theory, reconstruct the 3D from the raw imagery itself through stereo, but it's complicated and uh, not always, you know, doesn't work always great. So to help us along the way, we put LiDARs on these vehicles. Uh, we started on the very early days of the project with uh, LiDAR that had like a single line and then uh, over time moved to LiDARs that were much more sophisticated and, and uh, had like the, 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 the puck style LiDAR that gave us more information. So yes, it was primarily imagery, but we also LiDAR. How do you compare the differences in the quality of data from LiDAR versus radar? So that's, you know, completely different. I think we, we can maybe talk about this, you know, when we move into the realm of uh, autonomous driving. LiDAR is you know very rich data that uh, you know essentially it's a, it's a point cloud that gives you distance at every point in the scene right typically at least if you talk about the the, the ladders that are the puck style they are rotating lines like this now radar is very different radar is uh, you know is kind of raw data and it's very hard to interpret it doesn't typically it gives you just like distance to one object or the, the dominant object in the scene and, and velocity. Now, there are new generations of, of radars that are you know, uh, becoming uh, commercial at the moment uh, that are called imaging radar, and that gives you uh, many more returns. And in fact, can give you 
something that looks like a coarse image of objects and distance and velocity. And, and the two have different characteristics uh, in terms of like how they work in different weather. So, you know, when we talk about AVs, I think uh, the, the beauty of having LiDAR and radar and imagery is that you can some, somehow always have something working well for all the weather conditions you encounter and for all the situations you, you need to be able to, to deal with. So it's a complementary. And does the Maps product that Google have give them any advantage for Waymo in, in, in AV? So uh, the answer is that uh, some advantage, yes. I think the, uh, there's a difference between uh, what we might call traditional maps, maps that you know as like Google Maps that are mainly for people, right? And what we call AV maps, that are also called HD maps, that are designed for machines, right? Uh, you know, for, for robots, for AVs. So for most humans, you don't need the level of detail that uh, you need to provide to an AV because we also have, you know, a lot of uh, experience intelligence to, you know, take the course information and, and sort of map this into the, the world we see around us and, and navigate. AVs are different. AVs, you know, have a lot, uh, you know, that they need to do in a very short amount of time. They need to understand the world around them. They need to understand what, you know, other agents are doing, pedestrian, other cars, trucks, what have you, and then plot a, a safe course of action, right? Doing all this in essentially real time is very expensive. If on top of this, you also need to understand the static environment, right? Understand, you know, uh, the lane configuration, the intersection, the stop signs, you need to do even more work and your CPU limited. So every AV company today relies heavily on what they call HD maps. Essentially a pre-recording of the static environment that is preloaded in the vehicle and can be used. And, and these maps are really, think of them as like 3D models, so a 3D model of the environment plus metadata that matters, like uh, exact location of stop signs and, and lane boundaries and traffic lights, all these things matter. And that's all proprietary to each company, that matters also? That's a great question. So uh, at the moment, yes. However, there are companies that are trying to build a business in providing AV maps to the industry. Uh, so I think the first one was probably a company called Here Maps. Uh, that been trying to go into this business and to provide HD maps, and there are others. Uh, there's a, a one that um, uh, is called Deep Map that was founded by former Google engineers that is catering to the AV industry by creating these maps. There is, however, no agreed upon format. There's no agreed upon level of detail. Uh, you know, some companies do something you know online, meaning in real time, versus in the map. You know, people place the boundary differently. So I would say that uh, at the moment, it's still kind of the Wild West in uh, HD mapping. And I think over time, we'll probably see more sort of consolidation or standardized formats, but that hasn't happened yet. So go, going back to your question about Google, I think Google or Waymo uses the, uh, you know, some of the Google Maps for the underlying sort of uh, structure of, of streets, right? But they also augment this with their own mapping efforts for HD. Right. And can you lay out the AV stack then from hardware to, to the behavior and perception? Yeah. 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 So you often think of this as like a, a layered sort of set of, uh, of components, right? So the lowest level, you've got the vehicle that you need to interface with and, um, 
So that typically requires a deep integration, you know, through uh, your know, various you know vehicle components, and that's so that you can control the vehicle, right? So essentially, you need to be able to tell the vehicle, you know, uh, to apply the brake, turn right, turn left, accelerate, put the blinker on, and all these things, right? Even control the doors, to be able this programmatically. So that's uh, kind of the, the lowest level is the controls. On top of that, the controls themselves, you know, it's a pretty complicated piece because you know when you apply the brake, the vehicle will, you know, do different things depending on whether it's on a slope or if the, you know, the road is slippery or the weight of the vehicle. So there's, there's a whole bunch of work that needs to happen to sort of understand exactly how the vehicle reacts when you apply the brakes, for example, and, uh, and do small things to, to give a, a safe and, uh, and sort of comfortable experience to riders. So that's the lowest level. Now, all right, so on top of that, you, Maybe I'm going back, or I should go the other direction. So uh, that's, let me actually try the other direction. <laughs> so the vehicle, first of all, needs to understand also where it is. And so part of the stack is that localization piece. That is done uh, using a combination of sensors. You can't rely just on GPS. It is not you know, precise enough. Uh, GPS also can you know, uh, be uh, blocked by tall buildings. Uh, and uh, so there's you know, too many issues with it. So what you end up doing is relying on these maps that we mentioned earlier that are preloaded in the car. And you use uh, typically the LiDAR, one of the sensors in the vehicle, to sort of get the you know kind of a course map of the environment around the car, which you match to the known map, right? And you can restrict the match using, of course, your knowledge of, of GPS, of course localization. So you map precisely where you are, and then you can you don't have to do this all the time. You can do it only you know once in a while because then you can rely on other sensors like the IMU to know how much you've moved in between. So you can pretty much get from this kind of system centimeter level accuracy localization, right? You know precisely where you are in the environment. So um, the sensing stack uh, that you have all the sensors, so the cameras and the LIDARs and the radars, right? Also used for what we call perception. So the vehicle sort of knowing where it is, also needs to understand the dynamic agents, right? Itself. So it knows all the static because of the, of the map. You know where you are because you're localized and you have the map, therefore you know the static. Now dynamic objects need to be found and they are typically found through a combination of LIDAR, radar, and uh, cameras. And there's a lot of them looking all around the vehicle, right? So once you, you have sort of uh, localized and sort of detected all the, all the objects around the vehicle, you also have to predict their motion. That is a prediction piece. Oftentimes that's done at the same time as, you know, you can imagine doing perception prediction at the same time as one, one block, right? And, um, so what you do with this is you sort of predict for each object, you know, each object, each agent, what it's going to do over the next few seconds. At the simplest way of doing this, courses, would be this ballistic rollout, right? You just like, you know, take the velocity and project out. It's not very good, of course, not sufficient. You know, uh, vehicles move differently depending on, you know, the street configuration. If the road curves, they will continue to curve. You know, if there are other agents they need to avoid, they will avoid them. So the prediction can easily get pretty sophisticated. Right. And once you have, again, all the, the agents and their predicted behavior, then you plot the right course, you know, around these agents that also takes you closer to your goal. So you have a goal, you have to get to some destination, you have the map, you have all these agents, you have the rules of the road, and you do what's called the planning piece, which is to get the best possible sort of path 
you know, safe path around, around the agents. And that's the planning piece. And then you, you execute the plan through control. So you, you turn the plan into a set of actions, you know, that uh, the car will essentially execute, meaning turn left, turn right, you know, apply the brakes, etc. You do all this very often. You know, the typical is like 10 hertz or 20 hertz is a, is a typical. And, uh, and uh, that's uh, why you need a lot of compute power in the vehicle. So, uh, yeah, we talked earlier also about the sensors that are in the vehicle. Uh, you also need uh, a ton of compute because doing all this is expensive. And so what's, uh, you know, in an R&D type uh, environment, when you're building your stack, you would typically have, you know, a very beefy computer, you know, say, a, you know, multi-core Xeon type, you know, data center type machine. They are with also a lot of GPUs, you know, from like four to eight high-end GPUs to, uh, you know, primarily be used by the perception, which uses most uh, GPU power. That's what we have typically. And so really when we're looking at the real differentiating piece of the stack, is it that proprietary data set and really how these companies collect data and the quality of the data that's going to define who has the best solution? Yeah. Well, data matters a lot, right? You need data for testing. Uh, right. So, and the data is also specific to what we call the ODD. So uh, ODD stands for operational design domain. It is the environment that uh, the vehicle is currently designed to operate in. So typically you're talking about a geofence area, potentially some specific routes, potentially uh, you're talking about weather conditions that the vehicle is designed to operate in. Perhaps when you're building your stack from the ground up, you will start by doing only good weather. Uh, you will also this build the stack to work during the day, or it's easier, not at night. So that's all the that's the ODD is defined, right? And so what you typically want to do is collect data from your ODD, right, and then measure your performance on this ODD as well. You know, on this uh, you know these routes that you're designed to uh, to work. So that's why data collection matters a lot. So. The more, you know, I would say the, the larger your ODD, right, the more data you need, right, and the more testing you need to do, right? And that's why, that's why you see companies like Waymo, that's one of the most advanced in our, in our field, you know, having you know, hundreds of vehicles and testing in many cities because they, uh, they need to be able to sort of uh, be exposed to a large range of uh, situations. And as a matter of fact, the more advanced your capabilities, the more, you know, you are not seeing anything interesting for miles and miles because you're able to deal with all these, you know, typical situations, you know, sort of uh, very well. But, you know, in order to see what we call the long tail of situations, which are things you see very rarely, and to test the vehicle against those situations, you need to drive even more. And so that's, that's the issue, the conundrum in this business that you really need a ton of data to be able to, you know, to sort of uh, build, you know, bring a vehicle, you know, to market in a safe way, an AV to market. And it's not just the volume of miles, it's the quality of the miles driven, right? That it gets exposed to. Exactly. So, you know, if you only drive, for example, highway miles, you know, that's not going to help you all that much uh, because typically uh, not really much happens in highway miles, most highway miles. So yes, you're right, but uh, you need to somehow be able to uh, get exposed to, uh, to new things. So for example, in the, in the realm of, of perception, there are some, some particular agents you don't see very often, like maybe uh, police cars or ambulances or fire trucks. And so in order to test and make sure you're 
you know, your stack works well against these kind of agents, it is, you know, a good idea to perhaps go drive around police stations or hospitals or, you know, or fire stations, for example, to, to increase your likelihood of seeing these agents and therefore be able to train on them and, uh, and be able to improve your stack. Yes. And so comparing the approaches that different companies in the space are taking to building out the stack. And I think starting with Tesla, as they seem to be a lot, you know, I guess the most vocal specifically on Musk about this. How do you look at the, firstly, the kind of radar approach that they're taking and this whole neural network that the Musk keeps discussing? How do you look at their positioning in building out the stack and, and building that database? Well, I mean, Tesla is pretty unique, right? They have a way of getting data from the entire, you know, fleet of vehicles, which is powerful. It's an asset. Other companies can do that as well, but I think Tesla is uniquely positioned to do this. However, they are also limited in what they collect. Uh, you know, the vehicles have, you know, cameras and some radar, but don't have any LiDAR, for example. So uh, that limits, I think, uh, what, uh, you know, the, the, maybe the rate of progress that they can make. And, and I'll get back to this in a minute. In terms of computes, they have you know, been pretty advanced, very quickly building silicon you know, for doing some of their, you know, uh, I guess their inference, they are mostly their machine learning in the vehicle. Uh, I think they just announced recently a, a new generation that's going to be even more powerful. So, uh, and this is important because, you know, when you, you know, have like, a, in order to have a commercial vehicle, right, you can't be using, you know, five kilowatts of power to, to power your, uh, your AV stack. It is impossible, right? It's, it's, first of all, it would reduce the range of your EV in this case dramatically. Uh, it would bring way too much heat. It's too expensive. So you really have to move to silicon over time. So they are pretty advanced on that front. I think their challenge is that they don't have any LiDAR. And LiDAR, I think, is pretty critical uh, to uh, allow you to perhaps train on fewer miles, build a stack that will perform safely, even if it hasn't sort of seen the super long tail of events. So to give you an example, you know, I think the way the stack of Tesla is built for at least for perception, right, is based on sort of training, you know, on large amounts of miles from camera only data, right? But when you encounter something completely new, you know what to do. And so the example that, uh, the new, there's new example every month, but one recent one was a Tesla in autopilot mode on the highway in, I believe, Taiwan. And there is certainly in front of the, that vehicle, there's like an overturned uh, truck. Well, I guess Tesla hadn't trained their stack an overturned truck, right? So the, I think this perception stack doesn't know what to do. hasn't seen that. So, uh, you know, the, you know, what you, you always have this conundrum of, you know, you think something may be off, but you, know, you don't want to always hit the brake when you think something may be off because then comfort is, you know, compromised as well as in fact, safety. If you hit the brake, you know, unexpectedly, somebody might rear end you. So this video is, is on the internet. It's very interesting. You see a Tesla essentially going straight into the overdrawn truck at the last second, maybe it applies the brakes. And why is it doing this? Because it relies purely on vision, hadn't really seen this object before, right? And therefore, it didn't know what to do. I think a LiDAR-based, a LiDAR-first approach, you know, has a chance of getting over that hurdle, you know, you know more quickly and, and more, you know, more safely, I think. Because you can first and foremost build a 3D model of the environment, right? That's what you do with a LiDAR. And if you see that there's something big, you know, that is some, you know, somehow in your path, then you apply the brake. So I think it allows you to probably train not on, you know, 
billions of miles, as, as Elon Musk has, has, uh, has said, but on a much lower amount and still be safe. And are they collecting just imagery, images versus video, or are they using video for all those data, all those miles collected? Honestly, I don't know. I suspect that they collect snippets of video. They, they can't spread too much data to upload everything. So my, my sense is that they have uh, come up with like a smart way of deleting the boring miles and uploading the, you know, the thing that you know, are novel and interesting and punch that you can train on. So I suspect that only a small fraction of the data collected by each vehicle is actually uploaded back to base to train on, right? So there's a bunch of smarts there. But it's probably video, absolutely. But then they're going to have to, they have to have certain events that would trigger that sending over the air, right? So like, I don't know, like you said, a really hard break or swerve. That's exactly it. So they use other sensors. They use, you know, events from probably from maybe some logs from a perception, some heartbreak information, some other, other signals. So, and that's a whole logic you have to, to put in place and to build. Are they limited about what they can send over the air? Well, I'm sure they are. So um, first of all, they don't do it you know, in real time, I assume. Again, and it's all speculation. I don't know how they do it. They haven't talked about it, right? Uh, my suspicion is that when you bring your vehicle back home, right, and you charge it, that's when they maybe, you know, uh, start uploading uh, interesting events. They must have a smart upload, you know, approach, you know, that does it, you know, when the vehicle is uh, idle and, of course, doesn't upload everything. So they are very interesting. They are they're unique in the industry. There are others that have, you know, another app, you know, that are also collecting data from cars. That's uh, when it comes to mine, Mobileye. Mobileye, now owned by Intel, uh, has, uh, you know, uh, built, uh, I would say, you know, sort of safety systems, level two type systems for, you know, for vehicles for a long time. And, uh, you know, they have also built silicon that uh, is very efficient. And in their case, they you know, this system that they, they put in, in a lot of vehicles uploads as well some very, very small amount of information, some snippets that are essentially patterns uh, in, uh, in 3D that they observe, that they use in aggregate to make 3D maps and keep the map fresh. So it's a very interesting approach as well. It only works because you have so many cars with the mobilized system. Is there a situation in where technology and compute power can kind of bypass LiDAR and go to kind of some next level where, you know, they have some, the neural network that the Tesla has can kind of bypass and create a better map with the compute. I'm just trying to think of ways that maybe you can get around LiDAR. Is that possible? Well, I mean, I think with enough training data, you can bypass LiDAR. You can also uh, use stereo, you know, to, to get depth, right, information. So LiDAR is not 100% critical. There's probably ways around it. But LiDAR is also becoming, you know, very inexpensive and uh, less unsightly than it used to be. It's no longer that you have to have this giant thing rotating around top of your car. Now there are many companies making sort of a very small and high performance solid state LiDARs that you can probably embed uh, around your vehicle. So if I were Elon Musk, I would look at these, you know, very, uh, you know, very closely and potentially uh, eventually put them in, in cars. It's certainly, you know, LiDAR may not be 100% critical, but it does make the problem a lot simpler, right? And so therefore, you know, it's a pretty good idea to use it. And I think probably 95, 99% of companies use it. Only Tesla doesn't use LiDAR at the moment, as far as I know. And, and so Waymo, for example, they'd be, you know, they have hundreds of vehicles in certain areas, like Phoenix, I think was one where they have LiDAR on the top, which is collecting data specifically in that area. 
So again, LiDAR is not just to collect data, it's to collect data as well as to, you know, be a critical sensor for the uh, perception, you know. So it's used both sort of in real time and offline for the, for the map. Uh, by the way, I believe they have more than one. They have now five, five LiDARs. They have like uh, the long range ones and short range ones. I believe they have some behind the, the, the mirrors and some one in the front, one in the back. They may even have six, I forgot. So it's a, it's a large number of them. And so back to where the value is in the stack then. So like you said, it, it, it's really at the perception layer at the top, really the almost emulating the behavior of a human to really drive the vehicle in a certain way. And therefore, as much quality data and perception is required in the vehicle. So, I mean, perception is, again, is, is one piece, right? Perception, I would say, when you look back, say, five, ten years ago, when the field of autonomous driving was sort of, uh, you know, ramping up quickly, uh, I would say at the time, the, you know, AV stack was often associated with perception, right? You often saw these images, you know, uh, with, you know, 3D bounding boxes around objects, and that's what most people thought, I guess, the complication was, is perception. But it turned out that perception you know, has made tremendous progress uh, over the past you know, five to 10 years, thanks to deep learning and thanks to these new advanced sensors. And so I think you know, my view is that perception is no longer the thing to solve, right? Uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, it, there is a path to having something that's good enough uh, and safe enough, right? The biggest challenge is really the planner, planning. How do you plan around, you know, the environment in a way that's always safe and provably safe, right? Uh, that's where I think the, the biggest challenge is. The, uh, you know, most teams that started in this field uh, were roboticists and apply sort of robotic type approaches to, uh, you know, the problem. Uh, so essentially trying to come up with rules and tweaking the rules based on a large number of parameters. And that, you know, approach... I think is maybe at the moment showing its limits because there's so many different type of scenarios you need to be able to deal with, right? And also each scenario, in order to be really good at it, it needs to have tens, maybe even hundreds of different parameters it, it sort of weighs in, right? For example, even just you know going around a bicyclist, right? That's on the bike lane on the right. You know, you you know you have to take into account you know maybe their speed the you know, the lanes around you, the other vehicles that may be coming, you know, is there also traffic light that's, that's coming up? Is there, so you can easily sort of start adding dozens and dozens of, of different parameters that you have to tweak. And that makes the problem very, very challenging to solve. Uh, you need probably lots of engineers for each maneuver. And so, uh, you know, one thing that, you know, I personally believe and an approach that we've uh, focused on at Leaf Level 5 is to, to build uh, more of a machine-learned approach to this and based on data and build a system that will sort of uh, learn from more data. And the data, in our case, Tesla will collect the data from, from their vehicles. Uh, we will collect the data from sort of the, the lift fleet by adding uh, some sensors on some of the cars at large scale. So that's, uh, that is the, uh, the approach. So again, going back to your question, the perception, I think, is, uh, is sort of uh, primarily, I think, on the way to being solved, the current crux of the, of the challenge is in planning. What is the real challenge in planning for companies like Tesla or Lyft or whatever? Well, I think the, the challenge is, first off, to be able to 
to handle the long tail of situation you encounter, right? It's uh, easy to, you know, what, what most cars do, you know, if you look at the time on the road and uh, what they use lane follow. So they are just on a lane and typically following the car in front. That's the most, you know, so that's the first thing you, you know, you work on and you solve that pretty quickly. Then the next thing they do maybe is, you know, turn right at the, you know, at the intersection. Then you keep going down, you know, the list of, of things that you need to be able to do and you end up, you know, at the, maybe at the end of the spectrum, you have to deal with some, some deer that's like, you know, jumping from the, from the bushes and in front of your car. Okay. So it's unlimited. And so that's the thing. That's the challenge. Like how do you somehow deal with all these situations and be able to prove that you're safe enough? Right. And what's, what's the bar? Is the bar to be as safe as a human? Right. Uh, probably not. I think you probably want to be even safer. Right. So how, how, how safe, how do you prove it? Then there's a chance also of, of demonstrating that you're safe in the presence of some hardware failure. Right? It is very possible that you might, you know, have a camera suddenly is obstructed by say bird poop or that you, you know, you lose a, you know, a piece of your computer due to overheating or any number of things could happen, right? Or you have a flat tire, you know, what do you do then? Are you able to do some a safe maneuver? Can you prove, prove that? That's often, you know, again, done through sort of safety decomposition of, of the whole problem and the understanding, you know, the path. And that can be sort of essentially provably done, but it's hard. It requires a lot of work. So you've got that approach, proving that the right things happen in the presence of the hardware failure, and then also proving statistically that uh, you're safe, you know, as safe as a human or X time safer than a human uh, in the ODD you operate in. Right. And that requires a lot of mind. So that's the biggest challenge. Right. And then you have to be able to communicate this and to regulators, to the public. And that's that's probably the, the challenge of, of the day uh, with, with AVs. Can we move on to look at the different business models potentially in, in AV? And so I think we saw one where, you know, where you have the likes of Waymo, which is partnering with, with Magna and, and partnering with the tier ones to kind of build the fleet. I think they're building Jaguars or Fiat's. With, with LiDAR on. How, how do you look at the different, you know, obviously the ride hailers like Lyft and, and Tesla, which look at the different business models potentially? Yeah. Yeah. So great question. So I think there's probably, broadly speaking, two or three, right? Some companies are building what I would call the, the SDS, the self-driving system. And their model is to be able to sell this to OEMs, right? Uh, largest number of OEMs. To integrate, that would be a company like Aurora, for example, a startup in uh, in Palo Alto, California, uh, that's doing this. So it's pretty simple. They become a tier one, right? Tier one providers to OEMs. There are companies like, uh, let's say, Zooks, which has now been acquired by Amazon, but let's say, Zooks, uh, that are clearly in the robot taxi business, right? And so what uh, they want to do, and Cruise as well, is build a service, right? So uh, they don't need to integrate with you know, too many vehicles. That is, you have maybe one vehicle at least that work for to launch a service. And then their business model is to simply provide, you know, just like Lyft or Uber, you know, a service, but a service powered by by self-driven uh, vehicles, right? And then you have some that are more hybrid. Waymo is uh, maybe this more hybrid approach, right? It's it's both partnering with uh, companies like uh, I think uh, JLR and others, and might want to license the Waymo driver to some of these companies, I don't know specifics, but they're also interested in building the, uh, you know, the, the service, right? The Waymo One service, which is a robot taxi service. Now, in the midst of all this, you've got companies like Lyft and Uber, 
and so ride hailing companies today that are building this you know for themselves and so they are the plan of the business model is to to add AVs to complement your drivers with AVs right uh, in the case of Lyft uh, these AVs will be either our own AVs built by the level 5 team or they will be third party that we sort of onboard on Lyft uh, and there are already some pilots on this uh, there's uh, one with in fact with Waymo and one with uh, Active currently so that, that's roughly the, the business model and then Tesla I suppose is is somewhat similar to the right hailers well I think they that's very interesting so Tesla first off they, they want to sell you you know full AVs right in fact they're already selling you, you know, your I would say I've read that 60 two-thirds of people buy their Tesla with like a full self-driving package, even if it doesn't really exist yet. But, you know, eventually it will, one would hope. And then I think, uh, you know, Elon's vision is that you can monetize your, your Tesla when, it's, you know, when you're using it by putting it on some sort of network where it uh, essentially uh, you know, operates as a robot taxi. So I think Tesla's model is, is unique. My personal opinion, again here, is that most AVs will probably be operated as part of fleets at least initially. And the reason for that is that they'll be pretty expensive still. All the equipment, the collection of sensors you need, the redundancy needed, the compute, all this is pretty expensive. Uh, easy tens of thousands of dollars, probably more at the initially, right? And so that's not something that as a consumer, you would feel like, you know, spending just to get your car to drive you at an honesty, you know, on occasions, right? It seems you know, overly you know, uh, a too smaller market, right? Of course, you could, if you can make that super cheap, as Elon Musk is hoping to, then it becomes maybe more attractive. Uh, but until that happens, uh, I think uh, only, you know, uh, robo-taxi providers and, uh, and rideshare you know, will be sort of using AVs and getting value from them because they can really keep them on the road a large fraction of the time. So uh, they can amortize the price over many, many miles very quickly. And then do you think the those businesses that have a relationship already with customers, the end users directly have an advantage. Like, again, you mean Tesla or? Like Tesla or Lyft and Uber have a, have a relationship with customers as well. Yeah, I think so. Lyft and Uber obviously have an advantage because uh, the service exists, right? So there's millions of users using these services, you know, every day. And so you can you know, deploy AVs as part of the service very naturally, the go-to-market sort of, uh, you know, approach is, is very, very obvious, right, as an advantage. I think, you know, others, again, like Cruise and, and Waymo, to name, you know, probably the, the most prominent ones, will have to build up their own service, right? And I think also the service will likely be, you know, limited at first, uh, operating only in some cities and maybe not operating all the time or maybe not every single you know, desirable pickup and drop-up location will be supported. So it's going to be a challenge to build a really great product, you know, from day one with only self-driving cars, uh, not just uh, in terms of like uh, technical challenges, but also in terms of like building the brand and the, and the service and the, the customer base, right? We believe that, you know, people won't want to have like five different, you know, apps that they use for, for ride hailing, right? You know, when they want to go from A to B, they'll probably end up, you know, with one or two or maybe even one, right? And so the question is, you know, can these uh, robo-taxi providers uh, eventually be this, able to operate everywhere so that you only use them? It will take a while. Well, but, and that's the advantage though. If I've got Uber or Lyft downloaded on my phone, I'm not going to really want to download 
a Waymo app to have to hire an, an AV once every month when I do a specific journey, or you know, like it's 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 very hard for them to get to scale to put that actually into the service. Well, I mean, I, we shouldn't not underestimate them, right? Uh, they will find ways to you know, give you coupons, you know, to uh, the day to uh, make it cheaper, right? So they will find ways to attract you. They will, you know, find ways to to get distribution from like you know Google Maps or other places where. Uh, they can get discovered, so there will be ways for for them to uh, to build the brand. But yes, otherwise, the, I think over time they will require them to be in many many cities. You know, another way they can be discovered is by say if you are using Google Maps, right? For example, and Google knows your route. Uh, you are trying to go from you know where you are to some destination. They can see if that route is supported by by the AVs, right? By Waymo AV, for example, and if there is one nearby. And then propose it to you at that time. So there's like ways that they can build their brand over time. Yeah, I mean, everyone uses their products, right? I guess the question is like, at what scale do they need to get to to make it, I guess, make it then in what they're doing, but also just around, you know, the the cost of those rides in the early days, right? Exactly. I think early days are going to be super expensive, right? And so that's why, you know, we, we believe that the right model is to have, at least in the early days, a combination of driver and said driving cars. Maybe your AVs are, first of all, the AVs are very expensive, right? So, and the demand in this business is very, very spiky. You, uh, you will find that there's a peak of demand in the morning commute. There's a peak of demand, you know, in the evening commute and a peak of demand in the evening when people go out. That's sort of the, you know, every day is about like that. And so between the, you know, the peak demand and the middle of the day, which has like lowest demand, there could be 5x, 10x difference, right? So if you are building a service that you want to be available all the time when people need it, you need to be provisioned for peak demand, which means that your cars most of the time will be idle doing nothing. So what do you do with them? Well, do you maybe they can deliver packages or do something else? It's possible, but mostly they do nothing. And so if your cars are you know, very expensive, then your business model doesn't really work. Right. And so we, we believe that, uh, you know, early days when your cars are expensive, you use them for, you know, you, you have a few of them or maybe a small number of them, right. That are doing your, your base demand all day long. Right. But then they are complemented by, by drivers for either the peak demand times or for rides that, you know, these vehicles are not able to do yet. Right. So the combination is very synergetic, by the way, since the, the business is growing and, you know, the market, you know, uh, despite recent, you know, uh, hiccups and, and, uh, and headwinds with COVID, uh, we believe that, you know, there's a secular trend of people moving to rideshare or to not owning a car, essentially moving to using a car as a service. As this market keeps growing, you know, you will, you know, even though you deploy AVs on your service, you are still going to need more drivers because the demand still grows. So uh, we, will, uh, we will see this play out over the next 10, 20 years. And how do you look at the role of the OEM in, in, let's say, you know, I think Waymo, like you said, Waymo partnered with Magna, the tier one, which then partnered or to manufacture cars for, I think, like you said, JLR and, and I think Chrysler. Well, how do you look at the role of the OEM? If you look at the past few years, you know, car sales have not been, you know, doing great uh, worldwide with the exception of, you know, again, Tesla and a few others. And the reason for this is that, again, there's been, you know, move to rideshare, and uh, and fewer people 
owning cars, and that trend will probably accelerate. So the OEMs are, are under pressure and uh, need to sort of reinvent themselves. They also don't have, I think, the DNA and the people they need to build the really deep, you know, machine learning and uh, you know, self-driving engine that they need. And so that's why you've seen lots and lots of partnerships between sort of tech companies focused on AV and OEMs. As a matter of fact, these tech companies as well, you know, typically are like a software DNA, but they don't know how to build cars. So there's clearly a need to partner, and that's why we've seen lots and lots of partnership in this space. You've named a few, you know, the, there's probably you know many more that we can name if we uh, do web search. I still think that over time, if you believe, if you agree with the thesis that you know people will over time not own a car but rely more and more on kind of a transportation as a service provider like Lyft or Uber or others, right? Then I, I believe again, this is my my opinion that the the brand power will probably migrate to these networks, right? Which would probably mean that the OEMs their role will become more as like maybe tier ones to these sort of uh, you know services that rely on, on them. On their vehicles, but still, again, building cars is very hard. It's regulated. It requires, you know, decades of experience, and so the OEMs are not going away. They are they are pretty critical to this whole ecosystem. Very impressed to become almost like a pure assembler, even though they're assembler now, but just without the brand potentially, because the brand will shift to those who have the relationship with the customer. It's possible. Yeah, it's 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 a scenario that certainly uh, is logical. But I think it's going to play out over over a very long time. And the tier ones as well, right? Because again, they're in the they're in a tricky position. If I guess that everyone will get squeezed in that the values actually shift into that, like you said, planning and perception layer, which is actually software or technology, which is owned by not the tier ones and the and the other one. Well, I mean, some tier ones are also you know trying to build your self driving systems, right? You know, uh, for example, again. Nagda uh, was one. They may have, you know, scaled back their efforts uh, recently. Another one is again Aptiv. You know, they've uh, they are tier one and uh, and they are building a full sort of SDS. And in fact, they are sort of uh, testing it on Lyft. What's your opinion on Aptiv? I mean, because they've got level two, level three systems, right? Is that difficult? Is that a whole different ball game getting from level two and three to five? Yeah. Well, so I, I don't know about Apti specifically. I can't really comment on, on them. But I think, yes, you, you, you're right that some players, typically the players that are coming from the auto industry, uh, whether they are OEMs or, or tier ones, typically will start their journey in autonomous by doing you know, level one and level two and level three. And then eventually you know, hope to go, you know, the biggest hurdle is going from level three to level four. They have to somehow, you know, fund their way to level four to products that are you know that they can sell now, right? But the the jump between level three and level four is very substantial, and you'll find that you know many pure AV players, you know, coming from a tech DNA or Silicon Valley and other places, right, go straight to level four. And so like the rest is a distraction. The, the the crux of the problem is to build this level four capabilities, and they go straight to that. One day we'll know who's right. Also, I would say the tech company, the AV companies, are are usually focused on and the raw autonomy capabilities, right? So they are trying to demonstrate some level of performance of the autonomy system without worrying too much about the underlying hardware stack and vehicle, right? They, they take the opinion that there's something you can solve later. I would say typically traditional automakers, OEMs and TO1s will 
put a lot more focus early on on the underlying foundation and get that right. So get you know the right hardware stack and uh, and sort of real time OS you know, and and uh, and sort of uh, a middleware layer that's auto grade that they can build on. Right. So it's a different approach. I think we need both, and over time, I think we'll probably see probably partnerships that uh, you know build on the strengths of, of each, and that's probably already what we've seen on these partnerships between sort of OEMs and, and tech companies. What's your view more broadly on you know, putting these questions together and, and how the the automotive value change will will evolve? I think the you know we'll probably see again if you if you agree with the, the thesis that that. Over time, more and more customers, sort of, or users, please share cars and uh, and use instead a service uh, for most of what their needs. Then you will probably see vehicles being designed for these services, right? And that means that they will, of course, they will be more autonomous, but they will also, you know, last a lot longer. Right? They will be designed for very high duty cycle, and so if, uh, therefore they need to be more robust. So we'll likely see in my, my guess again here is more sort of fewer sales of vehicles we don't need as many right because they are more shared in these networks right but they will be much more sort of uh, robust and able to maybe go half a million miles or more and of course it'll be autonomous the other trend that's also pretty obvious is that that will be electric i think it's it's something that you know is is happening now so fast forward to you know maybe let's say pick a number 10 years from today you'll see Fewer cars worldwide, and I'm sure of this, right? They'll be electric, they'll last a lot longer, and they'll be autonomous. That's kind of the trend, in my view. What is the time frame that you're really realistically looking at for, for ABs? That's a great question. And I think, you know, probably all of us in the industry have, I would say, lost some credibility, you know, here because some, you know, extremely, you know, ambitious and optimistic predictions that were made, you know, some time ago, but, uh, you know, the deployment, you know, timelines. My, you know, we could say it's going to be less than 50 years. <laughs> That's for sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> but uh, much less probably. I think we're not there yet, right? The fact that my view is that, you know, the big players, you know, again, Cruz, Waymo, have all announced, you know, deployments, full autonomous, you know, uh, services, and then sort of push them out and push them out again, and are not yet deployed really in any meaningful way, right? And so, and in fact, you see some of them also getting into non, sort of non-moving uh, people, right? For example, Waymo is now going to trucking, for example. And, you know, I, I, I wonder why one can speculate that this is because they are still not ready to, uh, to deploy, you know, sort of commercial AV service, Passenger service. I mean, uh, and therefore they are trying to get value in uh, an environment that's uh, you know where the tech is a bit less complex. So, with all this said, so going back to your question, timelines. My expectation is that in you know the next let's say couple of years, right, we'll see you know really some very small scale deployment. You know, and in you know again, it's going to be in what I call earlier OGDs that are pretty simple. You know, we'll probably see, you know, the, the crews and Waymo's of the world scale back their ambition and maybe try to, you know, to deploy somewhere small, right? But at the same time, there's other players uh, that are, that started small and might want to expand. So, the, you know, for example, there's players like, uh, like Voyage, a California startup, 
that's been focused on the retirement communities and maybe gated communities. Environment where, you know, uh, are more controlled, where the speed limit is 20 miles an hour. And, uh, and so it's a small market, but you can use that as a beachhead, as like a way to sort of build your, your service and, you know, uh, and grow from there. So I think we'll, we'll see, you know, in the next couple of years, some, some success at small scale from, you know, both ends uh, of this market, right? From the smaller players focused on very specific OTDs and from the bigger ones being more focused. And then we'll go from there. I think it's still going to take a while. And uh, there are some, in fact, in the industry that, that speculate that we need maybe even a breakthrough in, in AI in order to really be able to deploy AVs at scale, right? And it's true that our system right now, you know, are built to imitate the human. They, they, can, they cannot you know, extrapolate a new situation thrown at them. They can't extrapolate. You can only deal with what you have seen before and been trained on, right? A human is able to extrapolate, is able to, a new situation is presented, they can somehow do something safe. So you need that jump then in, in machine learning? That jump, exactly, hasn't happened yet. And uh, there are many, you know, AI uh, luminaries that are working on this right now, the, uh, the extrapolation piece. But uh, we, we may need this, you know, in order to really have safe AVs, uh, you know, at scale. Isn't Google in the best place to make this jump, given their ML and, and AI here and they certainly are. I mean, they are certainly uniquely positioned, but who knows? I, you know, I'm not there anymore, so I can't, I can't speak for what they are doing. Certainly, you know, one, one big factor in all this, which we haven't talked about, is that building an AV takes a lot of money, right? It's an AV stack. Uh, why? In part because, you know, you need a lot of people, you know, of uh, expensive engineers. That's number one. Number two is, you, you, regardless on, on how much you rely on simulations, right, you still need cars on the road to test. And the more advanced you are, the more cars you need. So say 10 to 100, and, and that's expensive to operate. You need safety drivers, you need, so that's expensive. And then last but not necessarily least, you need also, you collect a lot of data that you use for machine learning, and therefore your cloud costs you know, are significant and only grow because you, you have more and more data and you typically train more and more models over time. Some players have unlimited money. You know, Apple is working on this too. They are not making much noise, but they definitely are investing. Google, you know, and then the biggest players have raised billions and are able to sort of invest, um, you know, in, in this for the long run. Do we need something like 5G as well? Because these cars, I guess, are just moving data centers effectively, right? So do you need a different, different infrastructure as well? Well, you should not, in my view at least, build a vehicle, a Navy, assuming that it'll be 5G connected the whole time, you know, because that may not happen and it'd be unsafe. So you have to you know, sort of assume the vehicle can operate on its own in the environment without connectivity. Now, with this said, yes, uh, these vehicles collect a ton of data. Uh, and that data, you know, some of it at least, maybe not all of it, but some of it, we need to go back to base to be analyzed, to help, you know, train and refine the training, to help keep the map up to date. So even if you don't, you know, uh, and by the way, uh, an AV typically collects, you know, multiple terabytes of data per day, right? Maybe say 10 to, you know, as a minimum. So to upload all this, you know, every day, you know, maybe, maybe you don't want 5G, but maybe you just even with 5G, can't deal with it and uh, go back to base to some sort of AV hub, right? And there, get that data sort of uploaded over wire or even Wi-Fi. But yes, data management becomes a big piece. 5G could help, absolutely. I don't, know, I don't think it's critical, this is my view. 
And so when we look at, you know, Tesla's plans and, and potential, you know, full self-driving in the next couple of years, it's, it's pretty unlikely we're going to see mass, mass Teslas around that are driving everyone autonomously, right? I, I don't think so. My, my best guess is that we won't see Teslas for, for many years. But again, Elon is, uh, you know, he's succeeded against all odds and he's built an amazing company. Uh, I, I own a Tesla, it's a great car. So I, I would not, you know, really merit for sure. <laughs>